Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Gazone and I'll be your host for the 7th delivery of Terrograms. Today we are joined by Thomas Campanella. Tom Campanella is an assistant professor at the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a visiting lecturer at China's Nanjing University Graduate School of Architecture. He was previously lecturer at MIT and a Fulbright Fellow at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He received his PhD from MIT and a Master's of Landscape Architecture from Cornell University. He is co-editor of a very timely book, The Resilient City, How Modern Cities Recover from Disaster, and author of Republic of Shade, New England and the American Elm, as well as Cities from the Sky and Aerial Portrait of America. He is also a frequent contributor to Wired, Architectural Record, Salon, and Metropolis, and you may have heard him speak on Carol Coletta's Smart City or any one of a number of NPR stations, CNN, or the BBC. We are pleased that you could take the time to join us. Welcome to Terrograms, Tom. Thank you. Ur urban disaster takes many forms, which we could categorize as in scale, human toll, cause. But what makes a city more or less resilient to, to disaster? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, we, we, uh, one thing that is clear from the historical record, um, and this was something that really came through in the work that Larry Vale and I did in that uh, was published as the Resilient City um, book, was that that cities um, cities are extraordinarily resilient entities. I mean, they're they're uh, certainly we know of famous examples of cities that have been destroyed and never rebuilt or recovered um, in any way. But they're 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 the the oddity, the historical anomaly. Um, in the modern age, at least, really no major city has been lost, um, mm -hmm. uh, except one or two. Rel relatively uh, minor examples, of course, except for the folks who were there, but um, cities just have a, an extraordinary capacity to bounce back from even horrific devastation, whether it's natural in origin or, or uh, human-caused or, or a combination there, thereof. I mean, uh, Katrina is a good example of one that was both natural and magnified by human action. Um, but as far as what makes a resilient city, I, you know, it, it's remarkably similar to what makes a human individual resilient. Mm -hmm. um, if a, a city that is struggling with all sorts of economic problems, um, social problems, uh, issues uh, regarding equity uh, and social justice in which the uh, education system is broken, uh, in which there's rampant crime uh, and so forth. Uh, a city that's suffering like that uh, is going to have a much, much more difficult time bouncing back mm -hmm. from an unexpected trauma, uh, such as an earthquake or a terrorist attack, uh, than a city that's robust and healthy. Um, and, and, you know, certainly the, we saw, you know, a clear pairing here to illustrate this is the way New York City um, bounced back uh, mm -hmm. from the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Now granted, you know, on a larger scale that was a pretty discreet attack to really a set of buildings and, and it certainly didn't affect the entire city, uh, at least in terms of the, the, the act of destruction itself. 
Um, but the way the city rallied around that and, and pulled together um, really was extraordinary. And of course, it was New York. I mean, New York is the financial engine of, or the economic engine of, of the North America, you could argue. Um, I grew up there, so I, I say things like that often. But uh, and and now you know, on the other hand, and not to not to make you know uh, invidious comparisons, but but New Orleans. We now, I mean, we well know, had all sorts of problems it was dealing with, uh, struggling with before Katrina hit. Um, and certainly a, a city that's that's struggling with all sorts of internal problems uh, is like an individual who's, who's ill already. And, mm -hmm. and when they are affected by a traumatic incident, it's almost as if the the, the body doesn't have the capacity to recover or is 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 already weakened so in humans we tend to in, when we're faced with stress we've got three response mechanisms oh. we can move we can adapt or we can die now cities they, right. they clearly don't have all three well mm -hmm. i guess they do they could move they could adapt or die and, but it seems less likely that cities move do right. cities ever move and like uh, well there are some examples historically of cities that have, have moved about a little bit, uh, from mostly from pre-modern times. But but it, it, it's it's highly unlikely that such a thing would happen today. Part of it is just embedded infrastructure, uh, which tends to uh, encourage reconstruction pretty much where. I mean, if you think of uh, most kinds of traumas that a city could endure, buried infrastructure tends to be not damaged too badly mm -hmm. in most cases earthquakes is an exception somehow but um but also there's the, there's the whole overlay of property lines uh, property ownership, ownership patterns and things like that which which can endure theoretically any right. catastrophe as long as you still somewhere right. have the records of right. land ownership you know that's just a something that's projected onto the terrain. Not to mention the historic uh, um, and cultural memory. Sure, oh, of course there's that as well, yeah. So, so you know, like, and, and, and you know, we, we would, you would think that a catastrophic um, event that really destroys the physical environment of the city would be a damn good time to perhaps change the things that were wrong with it right. and to start anew and do it right. In fact, if anything, history shows us that the exact opposite is true, <laughs> that, that, that we go right back and very quickly to building exactly what was there before, including all the problematic parts of it. And there's, there's reasons for it. I mean, one of the biggest reasons, aside from, as I said, the embeddedness of the infrastructure and the property patterns and, and so forth, is just that in the wake of a traumatic event, you know, people don't want to be fussing around for months or years mm -hmm. trying to come up with a utopia. They want the day before. They want to get back to the way mm -hmm. things were the day before the tragedy mm -hmm. struck. I mean, it, it, it's I mean, human beings are very similar in the way they deal with trauma, too. Mm -hmm. you, and so, like, after the, the London fire, the Great London Fire, 1666, you know, the, and we study this in, in design school or in planning programs, you know, there were a number of visionary uh, urban design schemes floated in the wake of the fire um, that uh, 
purported to solve all sorts of transportation problems and and uh, issues with that London was suffering from, and none of them were built. You know, mm -hmm. they, they they the city went back right back to mm -hmm. uh, right back to the uh, essentially was rebuilt as it was uh, before. Do you see this possibly happening happening in New Orleans, or is it way too early um, to tell? Yeah, that's it's still too early to tell. We're 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 I think another week or two away from hearing. First of all, who's won the elections down there? At least the mayor's race, and um, uh, there's all sorts of decisions to come down from um, from uh, the Corps of Engineers and, and other agencies that that are going to establish the or essentially establish the. Uh, the framework for rebuilding in um, New Orleans. Uh, certainly, uh, there there's lots of political forces at work as well. So, so you're saying that the politics mm -hmm. of design might play more heavily than the design itself? Or be I don't know if I'd call it politics of design. I would just call it politics. <laughs> I mean, there, there's and especially racial politics in New mm -hmm. Orleans, which is uh, can be a very intractable and uh, um, Thing and I, and I think uh, you know, pretty much everything is. I'm not an expert on New Orleans, but f from what I know, having been down there a few times and studied it a bit in the wake of Katrina, I mean, it, it seems like everything, every decision, every political issue is viewed through mm -hmm. the lens of race, which which um, can really complicate things. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so. After Hurricane Katrina, the media called upon you to discuss the disaster. What types of questions did they, well, did they ask you? <laughs> it, 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 they ranged quite a bit from um, some pretty perceptive stuff, um, but I, I would say a lot of it was pretty much soundbite-ish. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to you know, disparage the media here, but uh, certainly, the the um, the popular um, press. Uh, I, 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 one thing I realized was was that in spite of our digital age and electronic media and 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 uh, and web uh, podcasts included, <laughs> we are still a society and a culture that uh, in which the book is like the gold standard. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a book out, you are on the hot list for CNN for all the the major media, um, you know, and if some event comes along that connects you and your book, mm -hmm. you know, it 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 it, it uh, it's um, it doesn't matter if there's <laughs> there are people out there doing stuff in other media. If it, the book seems right. to, uh, which is which is fine in a way. I, I tend to love books. <laughs> I hope they don't go away. <laughs> I'm not sure they're going anywhere fast. You no. Know. Did did you feel that your work on the the resilient city? prepared you to uh, answer these questions well you you know I was I was fairly well prepared to answer most of the questions but you know what's interesting is both Larry Vale and I um, have written a number of books together mm -hmm. I mean individually but when you pull them together we're talking about one two three four five about five or six mm -hmm. or seven books um, and this this is a this the resilient city is a co-edited book mm -hmm. and, and which which is something that I realized a lot of people don't really understand. I mean, mm -hmm. constantly I was being introduced or described as the author or co-author, and mm -hmm. I would say we, editor. We edited this volume. This is not. I mean, we brought together these chapters. How many other participants? 
uh, contributors? Contributors. Oh, I, I forget exactly about about uh, ten or twelve mm -hmm. or so. Um, and um, and uh, but but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Today, which American cities do you think might be most vulnerable to disaster? Well, oh God, that's really not really my area of expertise. But I, I would say, in my I, I'm just you know. Or, Essentially, relating what I've I've been reading, and I, I think the West Coast is probably due <laughs> for some pretty significant earthquake. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, of course, we just celebrated the hundredth anniversary right. of the great San Francisco earthquake and fire. And uh, and I, I I have heard that um, that the um, People studying the geomorphology of that region are pretty certain that something's going to happen, um, but uh, and and I think certainly uh, the the coastal cities uh, in the southeastern part of the United States, you know, we do seem to be entering a a period of heightened storm activity. Mm -hmm. I mean, last year, last hurricane season was just incredible. And you know, my brother and his and his wife lived down in New Orleans. In fact, my brother's been very involved with the whole um, uh, the whole issue of, of re recovery and reconstruction in New Orleans. But he, you know, they they're already. I was just down there a few weeks ago. And they're already girding up and preparing for what may be another belting mm -hmm. by Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think that's going anywhere soon. I mean, I think in, we're, we're looking at years if not a generation of uh, heightened um, storm activity that's going to affect those coastal communities and certainly North Carolina too which if you look at a map of the East Coast kind of sticks out there and tends to catch a number of storms mm -hmm. as they move up the Northeast Coast mm -hmm. so North Carolina gets pounded occasionally. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note um, on your CV that you were once a firefighter. <laughs> yeah. Battling life. certain disasters, Lifetime. and perhaps make a connection to your book on the American Elm, which was about the elm, its growth, and then demise. That's that that connection is actually not as as crazy as one might think. I I actually I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, mm -hmm. in the city, um, but had developed at a very early age, and I'm not sure why, um, a real love and fascination for trees and mm -hmm. and. The rural countryside. Mm -hmm. I think it may have had to do with going to summer camp or so in upstate New York or New Jersey. But um, I wanted to be a forester. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my initial. When mm -hmm. I went first went to college, I, I was enrolled in a forestry program, uh, and it was only after working for the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management uh, in Idaho um, that I and doing for. I mean, we were doing timber surveying, uh, timber cruising marking mm -hmm. timber for you know cut cutting operations and that I, I just I realized I didn't want to be a forester I, I it, the, <laughs> the, 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 the the romance of it had been uh, uh, dissolved a bit by reality mm -hmm. and but one what what I did discover uh, in my sophomore year was landscape architecture mm -hmm. and 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 the way I came across it really was because my resident my RA my resident advisor mm -hmm. on our floor in the dormitory was a master he was doing an MLA mm -hmm. 
at SUNY. This is uh, SUNY State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, or ESF as we call it. In Syracuse. In Syracuse. And, and he, uh, you know, I would see him, I'd stop by his room late at night and he'd be working on these neat models. <laughs> and and I, I don't know, I think it something connected there. And it may have been like my fascination with model trains and dioramas and things like that. But just... I couldn't believe that you got to do things like build these nifty little <laughs> models real. of like little worlds and it, and people took you seriously. And so I decided um, to head toward landscape architecture. I, I did decide to do it as a graduate, uh, you know, um, a graduate student. So, mm -hmm. so basically I switched into an environmental studies mm -hmm. track at, at ESF and then did a master's in landscape architecture later on at Cornell. And um, and and that really the, the American Elm interest was was really was the culmination of both I guess my, both my interest in forestry and trees, which which um, was very strong and is still strong, and then the the interest in and um, study of landscape architecture, mm -hmm. but also my growing mm -hmm. um, interest in the history of cities and mm -hmm. the history of the built environment, which was something I kind of discovered mm -hmm. really at, at, um, at initially at ESF, but really flowered at Cornell. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the subject of the studying the American Elm really brought all that together. Now, now, could we couple the disaster of the loss of the American Elm with the disaster fighting of being <laughs> a firefighter too? Um, some catalyst in the resilient city. Oh boy, that would be that would be jumping all over the place. Um, I don't know how these things get connected <laughs> in one's mind, particularly my own mind. But um, what 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 type I, of catalyst? Well, certainly. I mean, there there are some power, there are some connect there is some connective tissue here. I mean, the the loss of the American elm was arguably the greatest like ecological disaster we've ever had in this country and I mean that I'm, I'm quick to add this on to that statement because I, I realize that's a kind of a provocative statement but as it relates to large numbers of people mm -hmm. I mean the some kind of catastrophe happening out in the wilderness is is one thing but this happened right out in front of one's own home mm -hmm. you know right out on the street right on the curbside and you know the the American elm by the 1920s and 30s was there were there were over a billion of these trees. Mm -hmm. It was the the most extensive urban forest in history. You know, it wasn't just Elm Street. I mean, it was every street in Maple suburbs. Street. And, <laughs> exactly, and the American elm was this this major component of vernacular American space. And then within essentially within a generation and a half, it was gone. Now, you know, there are elms around. Certainly, Washington D.C. has done a great job of uh, preserving their trees. And there are pockets here and there where you you see lots of elms. The upper Northwest, um, uh, upper Midwest, and places in Maine. Uh, but as a as a major force mm -hmm. or feature of the American uh, landscape, it, it's pretty much gone. And it and it 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 was a Pretty catastrophic change or transformation from this, mainly in terms of space, I mean, the spatial environments of streets. If I, I obviously I can't show this here, but if you look at before and after photos of a typical street in, say, the Upper Midwest or in New England, with the elms and then with the elms gone, you might be you might as well be talking about two different mm -hmm. worlds. 
completely different worlds. Do you think this had a lot of impact on the inhabitants? Did they notice the difference? Oh yeah, it, it had. You know, it, it the timing of it was 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 had huge implications because this the 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 elm this this major feature of American space for over a century. I mean, really, Elm Street was born in the in New England, actually Massachusetts, <laughs> in in the 1840s or so, with the this whole um, village improvement movement that stirred to life then. Um, but so you had about a century of the American elm being a major feature of, of American life. And it starts to disappear at exactly the same time that you have the automobile coming to the forefront, mm-hmm. suburbanization, the building of the highways, white flight out of the cities, mm-hmm. the whole so-called urban crisis and, and the urban renewal era. So you have these catastrophic, you know, uh, very convulsive events occurring in American cities, mm-hmm. while at the same time you're losing this element that was such a feature of, mm-hmm. especially of cities in the in the upper Midwest and especially in New England and upstate New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania. I mean, the the, the elms were amazing. You know, like Syracuse alone lost something like two hundred or three hundred thousand wow. elms within a matter of a few years. You know, and and, uh, and and this was a, the disappearance of a pretty important uh, feature in our in our in our lives. Has there been anything regard, regarding town identity and structure? Has there been anything that's been able to replace the American elm? Um, well, you know, some. That's an interesting question. I mean, in some parts of the U.S., the the the, the identity of these of places was strong enough to survive that. Hey, New England's a good example. I mean, you go to your classic New England villages in Massachusetts or Vermont, and you know they—they're still—they hold together because they had an urban fabric that that uh, made that possible. But other places um, were were more terribly impacted, I think, and by the loss of the elms. You know, you know, Henry James wrote a lot. Wrote some wonderful stuff critiquing Elm Street in in the the American scene, which mm-hmm. was a book he he wrote. Um, upon returning to the United States after a, like a two-decade hiatus in Europe, I mean, he he didn't want to bother with the U.S. for a while. He comes back and he's blown away. I mean, basically, he comes back and sees Manhattan and the skyscrapers, and he and he he writes about traveling in New England, and and he sees these these elm trees that are just at the peak of their you know maturity now. <laughs> Um, and he describes them as a kind of, almost a kind of, uh, it's almost a kind of subterfuge where the, these trees are so magnificent <laughs> that they are the the whole being or the whole identity <laughs> of these rural New England towns, which in fact had now by now endured by the by the turn of the century had been had endured several decades of economic decline. <laughs> Um, and so he he talks about how if you remove the elms you'd have nothing left, mm-hmm. and that behind these elms you could see the decaying homes, the the poverty and so forth. Um, but then and, and that the, of course the trees were were really the essence of the place. So in a way, the loss of the trees was was symbolic of the other events that were. Yeah, in in a way, and happening. that and then by the way, that's something that a lot of writers have used. Um, Actually, Jeffrey Eugenides, most recently, as far as as far as I know, um, in the Virgin Suicides. I, I don't know if you've read that, but the, he he 
there's this trope that it, it re repeats through the novel of the of the cutting down of the dying elms mm -hmm. on on this street and the, and it's linked to the the suicides of these three sisters in mm -hmm. the novel and so forth lots of symbolism yeah and of course there's the whole nightmare on elm street <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Terrograms, and our guest is tom campanella he's an assistant professor in the department of city and regional planning at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a visiting lecturer at China's Nanjing University Graduate School of Architecture. Tell us about what you're working on now. Oh, well, as usual, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, it, it's People have had a hard time figuring out exactly where to place me. I, I've had the same problem. But, <laughs> um, I, I'm working on, well, the, the major thing I'm working on right now, and I've been working on for a long time, is a book about the um, the changing uh, Chinese city, uh, and as you can imagine, it's kind of a huge subject. I I, I first went to China um, as part of an urban design studio in 1992, and I and I've I kept I went back and spent quite a bit of time in Hong Kong. Um, I, 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 I I'm going to be there for about six or seven months um, in the now. Uh, trying to work on this book, which is called Reinventing the Chinese City, mm -hmm. um, Architecture and Urbanism, or the Urbanism and Architecture, I should say, of uh, China's post-Mao revolution. And, you know, basically, the post-Mao period is 1978 on, um, basically the, the period uh, in which Deng Xiaoping came to power and uh, liberalized the Chinese economy, uh, encouraged uh, free, free market uh, entrepreneurialism and so forth, and, and basically um, ignited this phenomenal explosion that we're st that's still expanding today. I mean, it, it's one of the most remarkable things of our, of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. uh, is the, and, and of course we hear about the transformation of China all the time and the economic growth. What, what I'm interested in um, and I think, and maybe I'm biased here, I think it's the most compelling aspect of this whole story is the way the cities have changed in China. Mm. And it, it's, it's, um, it's truly phenomenal. No, at no time in human history has more stuff been built uh, and in fact demolished too because you know as, as, as uh, Robert Moses was fond of saying, you, you can't build much without demolishing things first or, or, or um, uh, well, he was fond of quoting that old maxim about that you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, which I guess was a, an old French saying. But uh, and there's there's certainly the scale of urban transformation and physical change in in, in Chinese cities is 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 off the chart. I mean, the number of of people displaced by urban renewal projects in in like one city in Shanghai or in Beijing in one year, you know, would be equivalent to s several times the number of people displaced, say, by the West, the, the urban renewal uh, disaster in the West End in Boston mm. in the 1950s, which about which books have been written, and, right. and we still study, and, and we should, but the scale, uh, you know, Shanghai, for example, had almost, I think, pretty much no, well, they didn't have any modern high-rise skyscraper kind of buildings in at the beginning of this period in 1978 79 and now they they have several thousand mm -hmm. i mean 
the, the number of people employed in the construction industry in China is equivalent to the population of California. Yeah. You know, it's it's just and and they're in many ways the they are creating the 21st century city. What kind um, of omelets are they making? Well, it's a mixed bag, and uh, I you know a lot of the are they Western omelets or well Eastern? they're <laughs> they're a high they're a fusion of things a fusion of lots of different things. Um, in many ways, we're seeing a lot of the the same patterns of urban change and urban development that we have gone through in the United States. Certainly, the uh, highways and the automobile is becoming a major thing. Automobile ownership has just skyrocketed in recent years in China. Um, there were almost no modern expressways in China in 1978-79 and now there's like 20 I think 21 22,000 miles and no one in the world is building more highways faster and further than China and there's a real like obsession with the automobile both as a status symbol but as a I think a kind of proxy uh, for the kinds of freedoms that uh, people have not yet achieved politically you know, you get in that car, and you, well, we know this as Americans, you get in that car and you have a certain, uh, at least, I I illusion of, of, of freedom and self-determination. Um, but there, there's been enormous um, suburban growth. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's very different in, its, in the forces affecting it, or driving it, I should say, than suburban sprawl in the United States. But it, in many ways, the, uh, the, the, um, the end product is very similar. You've got uh, cities that were until 1978-79 very compact and there's all sorts of structural reasons why that was the case and now have um, just sprawled across the rural landscape and consumed uh, huge amounts of productive farm mm -hmm. land which is a big problem that China is dealing with right now but also created lots of environments that are uh, would be recognizable frankly to people in many parts of the United States, mm -hmm. suburban Atlanta, suburban uh, Houston or LA, uh, big box retail outlets, big box stores, highways, strip malls, gated communities, uh, suburban subdivisions, golf courses, theme parks. Mm -hmm. These are all things that have appeared in China in the last, in the last uh, 30 uh, years or so. So given the suburban disaster that has been happening in the United States in the past uh, four or five decades there's no still no learning well I don't know if I would put it that way you know the the the, the suburban home that image of the house sitting in its little swath of green with the two-car garage that is probably one of the most compelling American exports of all time I mean people see I mean they've Why? seen it on Baywatch they've seen it on American TV well there's it's 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 the, the whole image of one's castle I mean you know this is a society in which people lived for you know more than a generation now during the Mao years in uh, very small very uh, small quarters small apartments extremely dense cities um, in many cases aging infrastructure um, and now this this notion of, of, of really of modernity of, of uh, living the good life and you know the well-appointed life with mm -hmm. a big clean kitchen with new appliances and 
uh, air conditioning and bright lights. I mean, this is all, and, and of course, mu much of this development, much of the middle class, which is expanding in very quickly in China, um, has moved to these mid to high rise residential housing estates on the edges of China's cities. But there's also been the development of of more of much lower density kind of suburban gated community uh, kinds of development. And that really is the ultimate status symbol. That that house, like I said, the house with the lawn and the two-car garage is, is the ultimate mark of arrival in many ways. Are they looking like castles? Oh God, it's a real medley architecturally. I mean, there's I've seen there was a project that in the uh, in the uh, on the outskirts of Beijing, and I'm not sure how much of it's been completed yet. But um, I mean, they had they had like the American zone and the European zone, and there were different and and I don't mean this politically. They were architectural zones, mm -hmm. and like the American zone had little like New England houses, and and then and the community center in the American like zone or neighborhood was a replica of the White House. And then then there was even like a space zone, which I thought was the best. It was these like sort of neo-deconstructed cubes. It, it looked very similar like uh, to Bernard Schumi's Little Follies in, in, in Park Lollet. And, 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 and you've also written that the free thinkers would get the California house. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's what it said in the marketing material. Um, but no, the, the architecturally, uh, there's there's a real it's a real grab bag. There there, there is a there is a real penchant uh, at the high end. These these really exclusive uh, gated communities with these suburban villas, as they're referred to. Um, there's a real penchant for this like wedding cake baroque, mm -hmm. you know, where you have a lot of like. Grecian urns and statuary. It's it you know it's easily parodied from here, but um, you know it, it's it 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 speaks to this whole notion of arrival. Is is there some Chinese variation of this? There have been you know the Chinese architecture is is itself the profession of architecture is itself moving very rapidly into a whole new world, and there are some. Uh, very interesting people doing work in China um, and in fact one real milestone was the appointment of uh, Yong Ho Chang to the uh, head of the architecture program at MIT and he's, he's one of he's been really one of the leading young architects in China for uh, quite a few years now in Beijing um, and uh, and really there's there's a there's a real search among this new generation for an authentic Chinese mm -hmm. architectural expression. You know, they they've gone through the era of modernist buildings with the Chinese hats. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, which you see if you go to Beijing, you still see that on the main, uh, like on Chang'an Boulevard or the main avenues. You see these these essentially modernist you know structures, res office towers, and then they'll have like a <laughs> a, a postmodernist reference to a Chinese traditional Chinese roof. Uh, there's been a real, a real effort on on the part of this new generation to uh, redefine uh, Chinese architecture, and uh, uh, and and some some great work being done. Do, do you think that they have the ear or ears of um, the more populist architects, or will there be a similar marginalization that has occurred here between 
the university oh, or the academy yeah. and their thoughts and how it gets implemented in urban fabric. I actually, form. I actually think that there, there's a there's less of a disconnect in China between architects that are doing some really cutting edge uh, exploration and developers mm -hmm. um, who are willing to build it. Uh, you know, there seems there there are a number of interesting projects where they've got pretty interesting architecture being developed by developers and being bought by people, mm -hmm. not you know folks in architecture departments, mm -hmm. but folks out there. Um, whereas in the United States, as you well know, I mean we have a real disconnect. Your your typical your your Centex homes or your your, your typical major house. You know, house builder is is uh, pretty averse, I think, to adopting new forms. And they'll always tell you that it's because the market's not going to bear that out. That people don't people want their, you know, Georgian revival or their colonial, uh, neo colonial or right. bungalow or whatever. They don't. People are not uh, willing to, uh, and that ties into the whole, you know. Everything boils down in America to the whole resale value and one's <laughs> one's investment in one's property, which is a real issue. I've heard a rumor that given the scale of operations in China, or thing, the way things are being developed in China, that the country is preparing to become um, one of the world's ecological leaders. Mm. Is this possible? I think it's possible. I though it would take an enormous amount of, of effort at many many levels in this in this society the um you know china has explained away its enormous environmental problems over the last 30 years i mean this whole economic revolution has has created huge problems with environment and the government has always said well we need to get we need to lift our people out of poverty we need to develop the and then we'll worry about the environment you know in other words they've they've it, it's basically they've deferred <laughs> you know work on it that's beginning to change and um and i i do think you know china is an incredibly ambitious nation i mean they, they they're really and you when you go there one of the exciting things about being in china these days is that you feel you get this vibe it's in the air that this is a, a nation going somewhere, that they're remaking their world. You know, I mean, no one in history has lifted more people out of poverty than China has <laughs> in the last thirty years, and and you feel that anything that they put their minds to is possible. Is possible, and and you know, one thing I noticed in 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 uh, in the in southern China a couple a few years ago when I was at at, at um, Chinese U. Chinese University of Hong Kong in, um, in Shantin was I would go up and I would collect all this material from developers about these these new residential housing estates you know that were market rate you know they were real estate agents and I would usually pose as a an expat potential buyer <laughs> and I, I collected dozens and dozens of these brochures selling these housing estates right and. I, I, all of a sudden, I started noticing that everything was green. There was this, there was this green living and environmental living and ecologically correct this, that, and the other. And what happened? Simply, were these projects sustainable? Or no. But they, there was a, there's, there's a real savvy when it comes to identifying trends and mm -hmm. and and really marketing mm -hmm. around that. And and this whole notion of sustainable design, ecological. 
had had gained green architecture, had gained a certain cachet. And these folks, these marketing people with these real estate development cards were were using that. Uh, and and very ably uh, to get you know to sell their wares basically now you know that's as I said they weren't building cutting edge sustainable uh, s communities but but I do think that 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 kind of passion to connect mm -hmm. with something that's perceived often in the United States as being the hot thing mm -hmm. you know will really have um, a certain uh, uh, will really connect. You know, Bill McDonough is doing quite a bit of work in China now, and and certainly his, you know, he's considered kind of, you know, this real trendsetter mm -hmm. in in China, and uh, and I think that could only lead to good good things. So, so you think that possibly the planning agencies who may have the tools to have a more regional uh, ecological effect that they're thinking of new ways of of expanding to the city. Um, yeah, some you know I was in Hangzhou last summer, um, and Hangzhou is is Hangzhou is is a, a beautiful city that's kind of uh, settled around this very large lake, West Lake. It's on one side, and on the other side you have these fairly high mountains. It's a very lovely setting. Hangzhou has has done a, really an extraordinary job in terms of um, building parks, public parks along that waterfront, uh, building uh, ecologically uh, informed landscapes to uh, to clean runoff water and, and wetlands and so forth. And I, I think we'll see more and more of that. You know, on the other hand, though, there's you're, you're up against other structural issues that that threaten to uh, negate any of the gains that mm -hmm. all that might like provide, and 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 again I'd point to the the automobile and the popularity of the motor vehicle in China. I, I have friends who I met back in 1992 in Beijing who were students there, and when we went, I was I told I mentioned earlier we we had this urban design studio. With Ching, at Tsinghua University, uh, between MIT and Tsinghua, we all bought bicycles. Mm -hmm. we, that was the thing we all bought, and they were like I don't twenty dollars maybe then. Um, and uh, and I remember I, at the end of the summer, I sold my bicycle to one of uh, or gave it to one of the, our fellow students who was at Chinese U. I mean at Tsinghua University. I I talked to this fellow about three years ago, and he was ecstatic in in telling me how he had car his wife had a car they lived on the outskirts of Beijing they shopped at a essentially a big equivalent of like Costco on one of the newer Beijing highways in suburban Beijing and he, he's also he, he really got into like model radio control model mm -hmm. airplanes and so he would drive he would meet with his friends and they'd go fly their plane he had essentially a suburban American life and this, you know, and he was the, really proud to. Oh, he was. Yeah, it oh, of course. And you know, and and my wife, Wu Wei, is an architect uh, who teaches in the architecture program at Nanjing University, where I uh, am a visiting. Uh, I have a visiting appointment there, and uh, she was gently shining her her colleagues in the architecture department for not walking or riding bicycles to work anymore. Almost all her colleagues have cars there, and they all 
drive. I think it's down to like two people that actually ride a bike to work wow. um, now. So the automobile has, has just become such a, a powerful status symbol and a, you know an icon of arrival and, and the new world, the new life. Uh, but you know, if and 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 to be honest, the the per, the percentage of uh, the population in China that owns an automobile is is minuscule compared to the United States, mm. but it's it's increasing mm. at, at an exponential rate. And 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 you know, even if a fraction of the Chinese population someday owns a motor vehicle, I mean, the planet is in is in trouble. I mean, it really in trouble unless technology can save us and and come up with some kind of low impact vehicle but uh it's scary it's scary jane jacobs recently passed away she was an urban theorist and author of the highly controversial book the death and life of great american cities when the book was published you were not you weren't yet born um, however as you began developing your thoughts on the subject of urban landscape uh, theory three decades later was her work at all influential well, I, I wouldn't say it was. It, I wouldn't say it was one of these books that that made me completely rethink everything. I, you see, by the time I studied landscape architecture and urban design, and I mean the, her her ideas had already been saturated into really into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I certainly uh, uh, am very appreciative of what. Uh, she put her finger on, mm -hmm. and certainly the book is just wonderfully written, and, and it, it is it, it is a, a sad day in in, in our fields uh, uh, to lose Jane Jacobs. The world will never really be the same <laughs> without her. Um, but uh, but certainly, you know, she she uh, wrote one of those those pivotal works uh, that defined a whole year. I mean, you know, urban planning as a profession. Um, was very different before that era, and, and and her book had a lot to do with the transformation of the profession from something that was very focused on physical planning and urban mm -hmm. design. I mean, it was an outgrowth of landscape architecture really early on. Cornell is a good example. Cornell was the planning program at Cornell was started by Gilmore Clark, who mm -hmm. was Robert Moses's chief landscape architect essentially during that that great period of the 1930s when they were building all the playgrounds and parks mm -hmm. in New York City and and he had actually played a big role in building some of the first uh, modern highways in Westchester County the parkways um, before that but of course that after the horrors of the urban renewal period you know the whole big planning, master planning, uh, focus on physical design got discredited to a large degree. And I mean, you, you know this story well, and there was a backlash, and that's mm -hmm. when we got the planning field moved much closer to uh, the social sciences, economics, and uh, it developed a, a whole different uh, cast. And, and of course, in more recent years, there's the pendulum has swung back to a more central position where in many urban planning programs, uh, urban design and physical planning is one of the fastest growing areas and mm -hmm. the largest number in many schools of applicants um, that we get for master's programs uh, are folks interested in urban design. So, so yeah, so, you know, things tend to, there's always a self-correcting right. measure or uh, dimension to, to things like that. And what, what role do urban designers play today? Well, um, in in what at what scale or what you mean in in the 
the expanding city or well the urban early, urban early design you know excerpts. well urban urban design is a as you know is a is a field that has always existed sort of betwixt and between architecture and landscape architecture mm -hmm. and urban planning um and and uh at various times each of those different fields have claimed it as their own and then had it pulled away by us another <laughs> and there's always been this and I remember, you know, Kevin Lynch wrote a wonderful essay that I, uh, uh, that's in the the collection that Trudrup Manergy uh, edited a few years ago. But he struggled with this term urban. He he wasn't that fond of the term mm -hmm. urban design. He struggled to find something new to replace it. But really admits at the end of the essay that he he failed to. And in fact, he proposed city design, which mm -hmm. is why, for instance, the uh, the. Uh, there's the City Design and Development Group, for example, at MIT. Still, but um, he wasn't too satisfied with that either. Um, but it, it's it's um, it's it, urban design has has always existed uh, kind of betwixt and between. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's lots that urban designers can contribute certainly uh, to uh, to the uh, continued struggle to create good places in in America in American cities mm -hmm. and to counter the the um, the negative attributes of aspects aspects of urban sprawl. Would would Lynch have been happy with new urbanism? Oh, geez, probably not. I um, new urbanism is is uh, it, it's extraordinary how 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 controversial new urbanism has become. I, certainly, one thing I've learned living in the South. I, you know, I live in the Research Triangle. I teach at, at Chapel Hill. And I live in a very old small town that's just on the edge of the triangle called Hillsboro. We just celebrated our 250th anniversary a couple of years ago, and it's a it's a it's an area that's developing very quickly. Um, there's an enormous amount of growth happening, uh, and one thing I've learned coming from MIT and Cornell and being in the whole northeastern uh, architecture planning school world um I, I i absorbed a certain animus toward new urbanism i certainly there's no no great affection for new urbanism in in the northeastern uh, big you know elite uh architecture and planning schools when i when i went down to the south though i realized very quickly that as far as options there ain't much mm -hmm. and you know I, i'm on the planning board of my town hillsboro and we 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 must assess uh, you know at least two or three major development pro proposals a, a year or more than that actually in, in the last year major and, meaning how many oh, housing units several hundred minimum mm -hmm. uh and and uh the options are often large lot one acre traditional suburban development mm -hmm. and more consumption of land, more mm -hmm. sprawl basically, or a much more new urbanist compact development, community center, walkability, sidewalks, pull the damn things mm -hmm. up to the street, porches and mm -hmm. you know, and, and given the options and faced with a situation where you've got rampant development, mm -hmm. these guys are coming in, they're gonna they're gonna get approved because the politics are such that mm -hmm. you know you can't turn them away, nor do we want to really. You know, we'd need a certain amount of 
vitality and economic development in these in these areas. Um, and so I, I've I've uh, grudgingly come to see that new urbanism and new urbanist principles, when done well, mm -hmm. they do offer uh, a, a viable alternative uh, and a better alternative to your traditional urban sprawl. We we had one project in uh, up for approval in Hillsborough where, in fact, it's still being battled right now. But you know the 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 uh, the new urbanist proposal that these developers came in with was not great I and mean, it really it was like b minus new urbanism but it certainly had a certain compactness and density and so forth um and uh it's still i it's been largely approved but we came very close to the point where it wasn't going to be approved and then what would have kicked in immediately mm -hmm. was the as of right county level um uh, entitlement which would have allowed the developer to do one acre large lot. Mm -hmm. It would have been a standard cul-de-sac subdivision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's better we get right. the new urbanist community, although new urbanism has disappointed me uh, uh, in, in its insistence, I think, uh, at the end of the day on historicist styles and so forth. Um, but then again, as I mentioned earlier, you'll always get that response, right. well, the market won't bear anything so, else. So is it more a matter of style that the that new urbanism isn't good enough, or are there some other factors? Well, well, it it, it there's two things I see, uh, perhaps more, but I'm only seeing two right now. One is that uh, often you're talking about greenfield development where perhaps there should not be any more development in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if you're carving if you're carving up the rural landscape and destroying these magnificent pastoral landscapes to build walkable, dense, you know, neighborhoods with schools within that quarter mile, you're still carving up a beautiful rural landscape. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it, it ain't much better than sprawl. Right. Um, the other, the other critique, yeah, is is it has to do with architecture, really. I mean, can't why can't we build a dense, walkable place that has a, a certain vibe to it and you do you do need the density and the density works I and mean, the density really yeah, I live in a small town and you know we have the coffee shop right. and it is a total engine of community you know there and um, uh, but why why not have architecture that's pushing the envelope mm -hmm. Uh, while doing the right thing from an urban design mm -hmm. standpoint, creating good walkable mm -hmm. communities with a sense of place, and we just don't do that. I mean, there are some there are some examples, but that, uh, of course the the market issue will always be dragged right. out and said, well, we can't sell these modernist right. cubes with <laughs> lots of glass, <laughs> you know. Plus, and there's also all sorts of uh, other structural factors. The the, the builders, I mean. You know, I've worked a lot with contractors and builders. I've, I've been renovating a very old house in, in Hillsborough. And, you know, there are ways that these people do things. You know, what? You mean we're not going to use two-by-four studs? <laughs> you know, you know. well, you can't do that. Cause, and then there's the whole, the building inspectors. Right. You know, so there's all these structural issues. Even if you do get the approval to build something really wacky and radical, mm -hmm. which... Frankly, in many places in the United States, and Donnie and company will tell you this, it's a, just getting a new urbanist kind of development built. It, it represents 
you know, upturning many apple carts of zoning and highway building and street width standards. You know that whole the whole infrastructure is all geared toward building mm -hmm. sprawl. It mm -hmm. really is. In, in in the new urbanist plan, is the density big? Is it high enough? Or is this oh, one of the difficulties or problems? Well, it, that it's been a one of the you know a lot of folks um, in small town like in Hillsborough, for example, uh, a lot of people feel that the density works as far in a in a discrete way um, to create a real sense of community in that place. But when that density is placed on the suburban fringe of the town, is it is it right there? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so so I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I I, I think a certain amount of density is great because, mm -hmm. you know, people have studied this and written about it ad infinitum. But but you do you you have more interaction with people. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you, you can't help it. You run into your neighbor. You you see the person there, and you're close enough, you know, to where you can't ignore them. They know you've, you're in each other's realm and you have to say hello and ask about the kid or the garden or the tomato plants. Or so. Yeah, and so, you know, it, it works. I mean, but there's this density is, is good for building is, community. Is there a push to infill? Where? The existing town Suburban centers? edges? No, mm. the more the centers that might oh, not yeah. have a critical density to begin with. Um, in the triangle the research triangle there there are some pretty interesting infill projects that have been done uh, and that are ongoing durham for instance i mean durham is a classic study in the whole urban crisis and and uh really uh has was down at the heel the downtown durham uh was butchered during the urban renewal period absolutely i mean they, they even tore down their great old neoclassical train station and i'm not kidding the train station if you Take take Amtrak to Durham. You get off, and the station is a double wide. I mean, this is what we've done to downtown America. But but downtown Durham is in the midst of a real revival now. Um, there's some very interesting American Tobacco um, District, which is a series of old tobacco warehouses, including the oldest one in the country, as I understand it, um, have been or in the process of being renovated and really has created a new center in uh, downtown uh, Durham. There's there's other stuff going on there. So there's huge opportunities and people are starting to rediscover urban living mm -hmm. in, in the Triangle. Raleigh, Raleigh has got some a lot of stuff going on mm -hmm. in downtown. Um, they've also, you know, if you think back to Ithaca and the whole Remember the Ithaca Commons mm -hmm. and the whole notion mm -hmm. of pedestrianizing a, a major street downtown? Well, we learned that that really doesn't work, except for in a handful of Field college towns. Occasions. In college towns, Burlington, Vermont, Boulder, Colorado, Ithaca Commons. Charlottesville. Right? Charlottesville, Virginia. that's right, no kidding. And, and they work there because you've got a certain culture there, a certain density right. of use, certain... Um, but it, it, they, they... Input of tourism. That's right. Well, Raleigh decided a few years ago to do a similar thing and they closed off Fayetteville Street and made it and it was an absolute disaster absolute disaster they destroyed half the businesses on you know on the streets these old businesses that just, did they reopen well they're in the process of, of doing yeah. it now yeah and but there's lots of other interesting stuff going on in Raleigh so okay so last question how do you see the small town evolving in the years to come 
Well, that's 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 an interesting thing, and you know, I I, I um, until only four years ago, I would not claim to know much about small town America. I grew up in Brooklyn. I've lived in Cambridge and Hong Kong and Nanjing, uh, but I I I I, I uh, um, have been living in Hillsborough now for a, a couple of years, and Hillsborough is a tiny town, classic American town in many ways, that has undergone all of the the structural changes that have battered both small town America and also you know in a microcosmic form. Uh, American cities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the, the highway came in the 1960s. You know, actually, we have Interstate I 40 and 85 passed by the town, so it's very well connected. But when 85 was built, you know, the the, the stretch between 85 and downtown mm-hmm. suddenly well, overnight really became mm-hmm. the strip. You know, as it did in countless other mm-hmm. communities, uh, and downtown underwent this this uh, sapping of all its vitality and economic um, vitality and and it's it's only really been in the last few years that downtown Hillsboro has undergone an, a really an extraordinary revival and we we just uh, uh, succeeded in bringing on board um, a, a supermarket so you know downtown. downtown yeah I mean it's not built yet but it's all been approved finally after a lengthy struggle and a very political struggle in in town but um, you know so downtown Hillsboro is is you know not only do we have almost no empty storefronts anymore you know the typical you mm-hmm. go downtown to most small towns older small towns in the Midwest or in upstate New York and you still see the empty 20 to 50 percent yeah and and downtown Hillsboro is just we've got new restaurants we've got a new one opening later this month we've got boutiques and now with Weaver Street Market coming we will it will actually pass one of my you know tests which is the milk test you know Mm -hmm. can you walk somewhere in the in the downtown and actually get a quart of milk Uh, and you know a lot of places fail that even Chapel Hill Mm-hmm. In downtown, right near the university, failed that test. Mm-hmm. Still, still, sort of fails it. it on no Franklin test. Street, you know, which is the main drag, uh, and it's referred to quite, you know, preciously as downtown Chapel Hill. Well, good luck finding milk and <laughs> eggs, because it's nothing but you know shops selling Tar Heel crap. You know, <laughs> so uh, that's a it's a significant thing. So I I think I don't know I I I think if you look at the real estate values too in Hillsboro. Um, I think people, you know, people are sick of suburban America. They are. They want something more. Tom Campanella is an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a visiting lecturer at China's Nanjing University Graduate School of Architecture. Thank you for joining us for the seventh Dispatch of Terrograms. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terrograms is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and the Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the seventh delivery of Terrograms.
me at night, all hours of the night, calling my husband, my brother, calling me every day. He's after me, and I, I was devastated. I was without a job, without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told this church kicked in after a few weeks.